Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. This episode is brought to you by World Anvil. During World War II, the Allies initiated the Manhattan Project, a program of immense scale that culminated in the creation of atomic bombs, the most powerful weapon mankind had yet created. What great projects will we have in the future, and what new wonders, or horrors, will we create? So today we'll be looking at future Manhattan projects, and while that was for a weapon, and many parallel if smaller projects were for military applications, we will consider other projects too. In truth, the line between military and peacetime projects is often rather blurry anyway, with swords often being beaten into plowshares when the fighting is over anyway. The space race is an example of a peaceful project that had peaceful aims, but was also a theater of the Cold War, and space race efforts like the Apollo landings are often seen as the other big project of the 20th century. At the strategic level, anything that boosts your prestige, economy, and production also boosts your military strength. And just as any sword can be beaten to a plowshare, any plowshare can be beaten into a sword. That's the first rule of warfare after all, everything is a potential weapon. So today we'll talk about some of the major projects we might see in the next century or two. A few are topics we have devoted entire episodes to or might in the near future, so for folks watching on YouTube you will see some pop-up thumbnails and cards you can click on if you want to see those episodes, and don't forget to hit the like and subscribe buttons while you're at it if you enjoy the content. Before we discuss future projects though, some quick history. The Manhattan Project is nothing like our first huge project, we've got the giant pyramids and cathedrals when it comes to big old buildings, not to mention various defensive fortifications, whether it's the Great Wall of China or a bunch of other fortification projects we've seen throughout history, like the vast number of Norman castles built after the Battle of Hastings in 1066. We've also seen immense road-building projects, the Roman Empire being the most famous for that, and aqueducts when it comes to moving water, and long before even Rome, we had huge canal-building projects for irrigating the soil in our fertile river valley civilizations. As huge as the Manhattan Project was, running an estimated $2 billion at the time, equivalent to $25 billion in 2021, the Second World War ran over a hundred times that cost for the US alone, and we spent three times as much money just on producing tanks as on the entire Manhattan Project. We spent about six times that money, adjusted for inflation, on the Apollo Project too. So what's special about the Manhattan Project? Well it was hardly the first big military or economic project, but it is usually considered the first big group scientific development project, eventually employing 130,000 people, though most of these were not scientists. 90% of the costs were building factories and producing fissile material for the bomb, but the actual R&D on the bomb was still huge. Hundreds of scientists worked at Los Alamos developing the science and technology of the bomb under Robert Oppenheimer, including future Nobel Prize winner Richard Feynman, who is in a tie with Benjamin Franklin as my biggest role models for how to learn, teach, convey, popularize, and live science. His various autobiographical works on the Manhattan Project and other matters are great reads and I highly recommend them. I already noted that we had had a lot of other big science projects since then too. 
On top of the space face we had the International Space Station, a more cooperative venture, and the Hubble Space Telescope, along with other major telescope projects like the Very Large Array. We've had quite a few nuclear follow-ups on the Manhattan Project too, many these days aimed at either particle physics, like our various supercolliders, or fusion research, like the National Ignition Facility, or ITOR or the Human Genome Project, for biology. Past big projects can give us insight into future ones. For instance the roads, aqueducts, and canals see modern reflections in our highways, plumbing, electrical grid, and the push to put telephone wires everywhere, then to get the internet everywhere, then broadband and cell coverage. Present needs can also give insights, we need faster and more reliable internet and cell coverage, we need better, cheaper, more abundant and renewable energy production and storage, and there are often discussions of trying to do solar power or hydrogen fuel cells in the context of a new Manhattan or Apollo project and also for fusion power or new fission power plant designs. Of course building weapons or getting into space are both areas that could be viewed as a successor to the Manhattan Project. What would be the next super weapon? That's a popular idea in science fiction, some new megabomb that dwarfs even thermonuclear bombs, but in reality it probably is not a good candidate for a future project. We do not use nuclear weapons, we do not build them as big as we can, and they are desirable mostly as a deterrent. Nobody will risk invading your nation while you have nuclear weapons, and some way to deliver them. There may be a need for something bigger than an H-bomb centuries from now, but unless someone creates a super powerful defense they aren't needing an upgrade except potentially in delivery mechanisms to avoid anti-ballistic missile or ABM systems. We have discussed options like relativistic kill missiles for blowing up entire planets if need be, the super big brothers of the rods from God we discussed in Orbital Bombardment, or even how to weaponize black holes or torn horse stars into weapons platforms. But these aren't weapons that are hard to build, rather they're just too big for use. Smaller, better targeted systems would seem like the more probable pathway of weapons development for now, so we'll focus more on projects needing a lot of science and engineering than on purpose-built weapons though we will mention some weaponizable aspects of the projects. The first potential project that comes to mind is a giant power beaming grid of solar power satellites, and we looked at those in detail and we'll save the notion of death rays for this weekend's Sci-Fi Sunday episode since it merits its own episode to itself I think. However as I discussed in the Power Satellites episode, I tend to think of the big grid of power generating satellites as one of our best candidates for kickstarting massive space development, given that the energy sector is a multi-trillion dollar one and also one of our perennially biggest areas of research. Proofing and building and deploying all that associated hardware is likely to parallel efforts to put up a rail system, highway system, or power telephone grids. In the background of that will be successors to the International Space Station, which has already passed its original lifespan, and while it could probably be patched up and kept going for a long time, potentially indefinitely, we are clearly moving toward needing a new one. The current one isn't ideally configured for a lot of the experiments we need to do next, and it isn't well designed for modular upgrade, replacement, or expansion. So what is next? There are a lot of options being put forward, everything from the Gateway and Caplana stations on the bigger and rotating side, to very modest replacements. Indeed it has been suggested we might commercialize the ISS as an alternative to decommissioning it, and from a historical perspective it would be nice to have a space station from the dawn of things still around. We do not want a lot of space junk lying around, but would also be ashamed to lose something so critical to our history, as we have its predecessors. Now while big stations like Kiplana are big projects to build, designed for hundreds or even thousands of people at a time, I'm not sure I'd call building one itself a Manhattan Project, 
It's more like a place where you have hundreds of scientists working rather than one needing hundreds to design it, though doubtless it would take hundreds if not thousands of scientists and engineers to draw up a final and detailed blueprint for such a place and all the infrastructure and efforts in assembling and maintaining it. But the science being done inside that next upgraded station truly is a Manhattan Project because it will be all about getting the data and experiments that let us find out how to truly live in space. Right now we do not live there, folks visit to run experiments and maintain the facility. Nobody is born there, nobody grows food there, raises cows and chickens or lab-grown meat, meets their future spouses, goes to school, and so on. This is a vastly different thing and whatever experiments we do on the next station, the background experiment going on all the time, we'll be finding out how to live in space. Two of the things we also have to learn is how to live on Mars and the Moon, and that's not the same thing as living in space. We tend to think of space as everything outside of Earth, but the differences between living on the Moon and in Earth orbit or in an asteroid or on Mars are enormous, bigger than the differences between living in urban New York, frigid Antarctica, or humid Amazonian jungle. We've devoted dozens of episodes to living in space, particularly our Outboard Bound series and Becoming an Interplanetary Species series. And the reality is that none of these places away from Earth have anything more in common with each other than with Earth or empty space, living on each will be very different. What they all share in common, in a technological sense, is that you have to learn how to exist where there's no nature present handing you freebies. You can't wander through the native vegetation drinking water running through rivers and breathing air cleaned by plants, you can't reach over and eat something, you've got nothing to make a fire with to warm yourself. You've got no handy native flora or fauna to turn into rope or cloth or patches or tools, you've got to make everything and recycle efficiently. However, this is technology that's very useful on Earth, too. I often hear folks, in and out of fiction, suggesting we might flee to other worlds to live on them when we wreck Earth. This is wrong. Because while it's nice to have a backup, even if we nuked this planet so hard it vaporized off every scrap of air and water, it would still be easier to make that radioactive pit left over on Earth livable again than any other planet, even ignoring that all of our infrastructure and manpower is right here. All the technologies that let you live on the Moon or Mars are the ones that let you live on Earth better and fix the problems here easier. Indeed vastly easier than making some distant world livable, even if we could open up a wormhole gate there and just run trains and pipelines through to carry equipment and people. That is another possible Manhattan Project for us, getting everything staged up for a very specific environmental goal. Right now we have hundreds of different R&D efforts and political goals in mind where the environment is concerned, not something tangible and specific like make a walking atom bomb. That makes a lot of difference to running projects, and it is a common complaint about modern wars, the generals often aren't given a specific and attainable goal, no clear mission with clear goalposts and a victory condition, instead you get dozens of nebulous and non-specific objectives, and we often see this with environmental groups today too, or lots of other causes and concerns, often folks with roughly the same overarching objective in mind have very different and even contradictory paths for getting there and will often criticize the other paths in favor of their own, frequently more loudly than even those who are the outright opposition to it would. Now I bring this up because it's one of the reasons why we don't see these sorts of all-in strategies much, they are much easier to do when you have a tyrant running things who can just say yes, I like X, make it happen, and will stubbornly stick to that through every hurdle to the project. Those hurdles can include running out of pikes to put the traitors' heads on when they object to the project. 
It's also easier of course during wars, or essentially it's easier to do big monolithic projects of these kinds when opposition to them is minimal, which when you think about it, is not a very strong endorsement of these kinds of efforts. It raises the question then not what the next Manhattan Project would be, but if we even want one. An example of a possible Manhattan Project would be us spotting and handling a 50 kilometer wide asteroid heading our way destined to hit Earth in five years, because whatever government is running the show isn't a great place to demand vast sacrifice and devotion to a course of action. It's the sort of situation that lets you tell thousands of scientists with tenure and a relaxed life that they are getting on a plane to a remote dedicated facility where they will work on a specific project and not phrase it as a request or great opportunity, except an opportunity to do their duty, and similarly lets you repurpose factories, shift the entire economy, freeze payor benefits, and so on without revolt. Again, these sorts of projects are not necessarily things to look forward to, and the history of a lot of grand projects tends to ignore that the great objective they sought usually was built on a lot of rough decisions. Even a lot of the non-military, economic-focused projects are not necessarily great in that regard. We rarely complain about the highway system in the US, but it did involve a lot of hardship for folks whose land it cut through, for instance, and that sort of right-of-way issue will be one we have to deal with in the future, whether it's with Hyperloop-style vacuum trains or orbital rings up in the vacuum of space, for something like a space elevator that's most easily placed on the equator, and the alternative is something like a tripod where you've got three or more cables running up to some common station in geostationary orbit. The former is easier but offers only one path up or down, and only from the equator, which is not where most of our cities or developed nations are, which is why we even contemplate something like the Pyramid Space Elevator approach. Orbital rings are also best put around an equator in the far upper atmosphere, but can be placed at an angle and leached the ground to avoid precession. Orbital rings also don't have to be shaped as a perfect circle, and for that matter they can actually touch the ground, or even be cut down into tunnels underground in spots, same as we often contemplate using them to make shellboards. We've discussed orbital rings and space elevators a lot, see those episodes for details, but they represent the high end of projects for getting into space. We contemplate a few others in our Upward Bound series, and two of those were the Launch Loop and the Mass Driver, which are both essentially big ramps, thousands of kilometers long, for launching things into space. See their episodes in the Upward Bound series for details. But they represent logical Manhattan Project equivalents because they are big pushes, both in construction and R&D. There may be a day when Earth is covered in orbital rings or hosts hundreds of space elevator ports or launch loops, but in the near term they'd represent a decision to focus on a specific pathway to space, because they offer a very cheap cost to get into space, but only after you pay the big R&D and construction bill, and the maintenance bill. It's like connecting major cities separated by a mountain range, you can do it by plane or helicopter or a tram over a mountain, or cutting a tunnel through for a canal or road or rail line, and you might one day do all of the above, but initially you have to pick one. As with most big projects, once you start, even if it turns out to be more expensive than you thought, or another method suddenly becomes demonstrably better and cheaper, you generally have to keep at it because you're already invested. Emotionally and politically too. Often even if a new method can be demonstrated to be better and cheaper to switch to, even with the original halfway done, you would have problems getting folks to switch tracks at that point. This is a very well-known issue to governments and companies too, and is part of why they often hesitate to jump on board a given ship even if it's looking like the good one, because they know that it's real hard to switch ships or change horses midstream, or various other analogies for being stuck with your selection even if it wasn't the best pick in hindsight. 
I'm generally of the opinion no options for fast and light travel exist, but were there one, that would presumably be a Manhattan Project. And in some sci-fi settings or 4X space video games, we see factions with different FTL systems using different physics, implying different paths were pursued, and that by going for one, it becomes too difficult to switch to another profitably as you're too invested at that point. Of course if you decide to switch gears, then doing so is a Manhattan Project itself, probably including the need for overwhelming will or drive to push it. These sorts of things are not necessarily technological either, and often wouldn't be principally. Something like switching your standards for measurements and units, or the way you teach math or reading, or standardizing your operating system for computers, or power supply or so on can be tech or science influence, but all huge switchover projects that are an awful lot more about will and pressure to do it, and inertia against changing. Transport systems and energy are both great examples of that and also examples where I tend not to think standardization projects are necessarily wise, but often tempting. Beyond the fact that a given power production or transport system is not necessarily as good in one area as another, diversity has a lot of pluses going for it, and sometimes having five or six different systems, even when one is almost always better, is good. Alternatively, if it is better by a wide enough margin, then no, and Fusion for instance is an example of a power supply that's just vastly better if we can get it working and arguably is an ongoing Manhattan Project, indeed arguably the real successor of that project given that Fusion Bombs were the follow-up to Fission Bombs, and controlled Fusion Power the follow-up from there. It's a bit ironic that basic fission power generation is much easier than a Fission Bomb, but that Fusion Bombs are easier than Fusion Power especially given that fusion occurs naturally in stars. Folks back in the day made a decent logical guess that we would crack the fusion problem in a generation given how quick we did fission power, fission bombs, and fusion bombs, and again given that fusion occurs naturally in stars, and this gives us the constant and now very old joke that fusion power is just 20 years in the future and always will be, which to be honest is getting up there with informing folks Iceland is green and Greenland is icy in terms of being overused and unhelpful. Of course that's another interesting project, not just developing fusion but dealing with ice melting, or alternatively intentionally melting that ice. In our Earth 2.0 series we looked at some scenarios for colonizing the Arctic and Antarctic, and we also contemplated some big projects like turning deserts into farmland or forest, or constructing artificial islands, or ones floating in the sky for that matter. I suspect we will see a push to first halt expanding desertification, and then push it back, in part because it's a great place to dump carbon, and trying to turn several hundred thousand square kilometers of desert into productive land is potentially a sort of emotional or inspiring grand project that space races or cathedrals and pyramid building had going for them. So that's a short list of potential megaprojects for the next century or two, and again we have looked at several in more detail in other episodes but perhaps the biggest feature of a Manhattan-style project that we skipped is secrecy and the unknown. That project wasn't being advertised of course, and we don't know what the future holds. We have discussed some potentially grand and awesome concepts that might happen in the future, but in many ways it's all the unknown ones that we haven't even dreamt up yet that hold the potential to be game-changing. One thing seems sure, strange and surprising science and technology await us in the future, and many massive and amazing projects will come from them. So we'll get to our upcoming schedule in a moment, but first, I wanted to welcome on board our newest sponsor, World Anvil, the award-winning world-building toolset. 
As I've probably mentioned before, I've rolled my share of 20-sided dice down the years in various pen and paper role-playing games, and like a lot of gamers or fiction writers, I tend to get very into the world-building side of things, fleshing out my setting to often very deep levels. I'd imagine channel regulars can guess how detailed I can get in my world-building. Down the years I've gotten increasingly used to having to join my gaming group remotely, something a lot of folks had to adjust to this year, and it often made it challenging to run games, using digital assets in a lot of cases, but at the same time was a great opportunity to incorporate many new elements into those pen and paper games. But often hard to find, learn, and use all those various tools, so I was very impressed with World Anvil's tools as it lets you both quickly create settings and flush them out in very deep and interactive levels. Everything from leaving notes on maps and smaller maps to alternate timeline tracking for your world's history, whether you're managing a campaign or writing a novel, whether you're making city or dungeon maps or family genealogies, whether it's sci-fi or fantasy genres, World Anvil lets you forge your setting better and easier than anything I've ever worked with before. Some features that really impressed me though was that they have a giant collection of detailed tutorial videos for using the features, and a free version, so that you can not only try it out with most of the major features available, but selectively share your setting with others in your game, or anyone else for that matter, as they also incorporate ways to monetize your content, such as Patreon or Ko-fi or your own storefront. World Anvil offers Wikipedia-like articles for your world setting, interactive maps, timelines, an RPG manager, and a full novel writing software, all the tools you'll need to run your RPG campaign or write your novel and never lose your notes again. If you'd like to give World Anvil a try and let it help you forge new worlds, just click the link in this episode's description. So that wraps us up for today, but not for this week, as we have our Sci-Fi Sunday episode, Death Rays, coming up in a few days, and we'll examine if this popular sci-fi trope might emerge as a real weapon in the future. Then next Thursday, we'll be starting up our new Galactic Domination series with Empire Eternal, and in two weeks we'll examine brain-computer interfaces, then wrap the month up with our end-of-the-month livestream Q&A. If you want to us when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel, and if you'd like to help support future episodes you can donate to us on Patreon or on our website IsaacArthur.net, which I'll link to in the episode description below, along with all of our various social media forums where you can get updates and chat with others about the concepts in the episodes and many other futuristic ideas. You can also follow us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify to get our audio-only versions of the show. Until next time, thanks for watching, and have a great week.